Uh, we started this 14 weeks ago. And even though we've reached the end, it's kind of, and in many ways, a beginning for us. I love what Trent said last week. He said that our conversation has helped him move from fear to freedom. And the reality is, is that we have, a, a, you know, under, undertook this journey because of a lot of different reasons, but many of us showed up in this journey with a little bit of church baggage when it came to the book of Revelation. And it had been used in a lot of different ways, and it's been kind of fearful and scary, and, and gosh, what is going on? But hopefully, it has given you some um, fresh perspective. I'm going to read the beginning all the way back to the beginning of Revelation chapter 1. It says this, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, like I said, many of us came to this conversation with some baggage. Some of you came to this conversation and go, I've never heard of it before. Um, we've talked about background. We've talked about genre. We've talked about the context. We've talked about all these Old Testament hyperlinks in, in it. We've talked about historical context. We've talked about Roman imperial propaganda and how much the Roman people were like indoctrinated to worship not only Caesar, but Rome itself. And how all those themes have come to pass. Now, I'm going to just throw it out to you. What are some images and themes throughout this conversation that have stuck out to you, that have compelled you, that have uh, maybe been um, helpful? What's come to mind for you? What are you taking with you in your life? What are some images and thoughts? Apocalyptic literature. Now, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> but it is unveiling literature. It's opening up literature. It's not um, day after tomorrow literature. What else? Yeah. It's a little longer. I just like not having a picture that Jerry B. Jenkins is not the end all of the Bible. Sure. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah, different, a different perspective on how to read it. Yeah. yeah. Any other images or? I was just going to say to piggyback on that. Yeah. The, the arrogance we have sometimes to get hope. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was a letter written to them. It was a letter written to them, and uh, they would have known what it meant. And for us to go, well, they didn't really know. It was about Mikhail Gorbachev <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. We're not trying to escape somewhere else. Right. Huge theme. This isn't a, a, 
a reason for us to pull back and, and that one day we're going to escape all these hard things, but that we're actually just in it. We're, we're in empire. Yeah, anything else? We're living in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's the hope. Yeah, that's, the, that's what we cling to. And that's what we live towards. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. The massive, the massive fix. Massive, yeah. Absolutely. So coincidentally, it's restoration. <laughs> coincidentally. <laughs> Gary, it looked like you were going to say something. Yeah, I'm going to read something. Uh, on the white horse is called Faithful and True, mm-hmm. and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Mm-hmm. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, mm-hmm. and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Big stuff. We talked about the day of the Lord. We've talked about the Lion of Judah, what that meant. We talked about the Passover lamb. We talked about witnesses. We talked about the slain lamb and the dragon, right? The, the two different, you know, characters here. We talked about the prostitute of Babylon and the bride of the lamb. We talked about the contrasting of the feast, right? You get this one feast where it's like birds feasting on flesh after a battle, <laughs> And then you've got this beautiful wedding banquet. Now, we haven't covered it all, and uh, nor do I think there's some kind of uh, special gifting that I have that is like, I mean, I think I've probably gotten a few things right, but maybe not, maybe 80%. I don't know. That's not the point. But we felt it was the right time in the life of our community and the right time in our place and in our time to wrestle with some of these themes. Last week, we began to unpack the ending of the book. And I'm just going to read the first five verses of chapter 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city of the, the street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, and there will not be, need to They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Throughout the writing, John um, has operated with two clearly distinguishable opposing sides. Very clear. And we've read on that on one side there is God and the Lamb and the seven spirits and the woman and the seven churches and these allegiant witnesses and the four living things and the 24 elders and the good angels. All of them are marching towards New Jerusalem. And on the other side, we read about the dragon and the wild beasts and the demonic and human servants, all who were embodied in Babylon. So you got New Jerusalem and Babylon. And the way John writes 
thoughts. It's as if they're totally clear one from the other. Like this huge ravine separates the two. And his message has been, choose your team. Choose your city. And it's part of his rhetorical strategy, right? Choose Babylon, choose New Jerusalem. Choose Team Lamb and you become a faithful dissident who resists the dragon, okay? But when it comes to Babylon and the New Jerusalem, in Revelation, the two visions differ really distinctly, but I think that the reality is, is I don't think it's as easy for us to distinguish. I think it's, in a sense, like this beautiful imaginative caricature of good versus evil. But I think it's really hard for us to see it sometimes. Scott McKnight, in his book on Revelation, he wrote this, the heart of Babylon will always be arrogant self-sufficiency that has no need for God, no care for the people of God, and no commitment to the ways of God. And for some of us, we go, man, that just seems so clear and so obvious, but it's not. It's not clear and obvious. I think it's actually, in many ways, it's subtle. It's also true that many of the self-professed people that call themselves New Jerusalem people, if we're honest, Babylon is really hard to resist. And I actually think, on the other hand, people who would not call themselves Christians or not call themselves followers of Jesus actually practice a lot of New Jerusalem things. And it's hard for us to admit that sometimes they're better at New Jerusalem practice than we are. And so what's interesting is, from a, real pers- a very real perspective, in the here and now, The line between Babylon and Jerusalem does not run between religion and secularism. It doesn't run between the just and the unjust. It doesn't run between Christianity and everything else. It runs as, I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said that it runs through each human heart each human heart, through each human being. And this is the reason why we titled this series of teachings Faithful Dissidents. It's the reason why we did it. Because what is a dissident? A dissident is somebody who opposes official policy, who disagrees, who separates their opinion. They're they're a nonconformist to official policy. Michael Gorman writes this in his book. He says this, Revelation as a prophecy should probably be understood as anti-assimilationist or anti-accommodationist literature. I can't believe I said that right. It is also in this sense that Revelation is resistance literature, a thoroughgoing prophetic critique of the system of Roman power. And the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. 
Meaning, the historians have, have looked, have scoured everything that there is in the day of Rome, and this is the most anti-establishment, anti-Roman literature there was. And it was written to seven little house churches. But I think dissidents need manifestos. And I think that sometimes I think the word manifesto gets a bad rap, right? It's always like, like the Unabomber's manifesto or whatever. It's like, why do the bad guys get manifestos? What if, like, we had a manifesto? Well, it turns out we do. Our youth just read it. We just participated in an Old Testament manifesto. The Shema. Something that they, they recited, that they lived, that it wasn't just about what they knew in their heads, but how they lived their lives. Some people call the New Testament version of that manifesto the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew 6, Jesus says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a manifesto. To, because, and this is, this is Michael Gorman. Let me just throw this quote up here for us. He says that to pray for the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Lord, is to commit oneself and one's community to embody the values and practices of that kingdom now in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. So in, in many ways, it's not just church, and we said this before, it's not praying a prayer and then going on with life how you, whatever way you want. There's something about the pull of Jesus and what Jesus is doing, not only now and in the future, that when we pray that prayer, we're actually saying, I am committing myself to that future, that future city now, the city of the Lamb. I'm committing myself to that future city now. And so the seven churches received this letter and, and, and they received it. It was a vivid picture of where God is taking his creation. And they were called to holistically practice it as a community. Now, I can imagine um, that had to be very difficult. And we talked about this early on in the series, just about what these churches were experiencing um, and how some of them were kind of like leaning towards the worship of, of Caesar because it kind of made their life easier. And we talked about all those things. But this letter is not a fantasy. It's certain hope. It's guaranteed by the faithful and true God and by the death and resurrection and exaltation of the slaughtered lamb, the faithful and true witnesses. Now, I believe this letter kind of calls us to four things, really brief. And I think there's four intentional things that, as a community we need to keep in mind. The first is we are a community of worship. 
We are a community of worship. We all worship. Every human being worships. And the reason why I say this is we gather to reorient our worship. That's why we gather. We don't gather to uh, produce something that you consume. We gather to rechange, reorient our hearts around who we worship and why. We give honor and praise to God in the Lamb for the present and future salvation offered to us and to all the world. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. Second thing we do is we're a community of mission. And, and what I mean by that is something that we participate in with our whole selves because of this. It's not just a neck-up belief. It is a whole-life participation. We embody values and practices of the hope that is listed out in this last chapter. We embody those practices and we embody those uh, values now because we believe they will fully be realized in the days to come. The third thing is, is we are a community of prophecy. Now, <laughs> let me recapture the word prophecy from, I think, some uh, predictive timeline um, kind of things. What I mean when I say we're a community of prophecy is we, we name and we speak against values and practices that are at odds with what God wants to do in the coming cre new creation. So as a community, we wrestle. This is why we do teaching. This is why we talk about scriptures, because it is so subtle for us to be pulled into the ways of Babylon. And what God is, what we need to be doing as a community is wrestling these things out together. That's what prophecy means when I say a community of prophecy. And then the final one is this, we live as if, as if everything is true. We are a community of hope. Like, <laughs> new city, the city of the Lamb kind of hope changes all the things. It doesn't change your circumstance. It doesn't change your family dynamics. It doesn't change your crushed dreams for this life. It doesn't change your diagnosis. It doesn't change those things. But being a community of hope is we live as if one day all these things that God has said will be true will come true. And we recognize that this new creation cannot be achieved by our effort. but it's something that we live in anticipation for. And so to the churches, this was an invitation to overcome, okay? My guess is that each of these churches, they got this letter, remember, they were given a, a courier, this person did a circular loop and went to the churches and performed this letter of John's. 
out loud, probably pretty dramatically. (laughs) And I believe that it had to, when they heard this letter, I can just imagine that it had some major impact on them. And it probably created a fair amount of conversation, especially the church at Laodicea. So when it comes to doing this stuff, you know, to being a a community of worship, to being a community of mission, to being a community of prophecy, and to be a community of hope, uh, we need each other to do that. And I believe the task of every local church is to be like a borough or a neighborhood or a suburb of New Jerusalem. That, that's like, that's our task. And that's why in 2024, which is just a couple weeks away, FYI, we're going to practice community. It's going to be, in a sense, our, our theme for the year. We're going to practice community. And there's more to come on that. There's going to be a lot we're going to talk about in the first days of the new year in regards to that. But so much of our teaching, so much of our, our organization as a church, so much of our, our intentionality is going to be rooted in this idea of practicing community. So I just want to finish by reading the last part of chapter 22. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit of the bride and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let those, the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to the person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes the words away from the scroll of the prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The other day, I was, a couple weeks ago, um, when you work together with somebody for a while, you just get into conversations. And Reuben and I have been working pretty much the last six months together on the remodel. And so we get into chats about, um, he's not even here, so I can say a lot more than I was planning. Oh, where is he at? Is he there? Yes. Ruben's not here. Let's talk about it. I'm just kidding. Um, so we get into conversations about world events and, and themes and all these kinds of things. And then we were talking um, about the lamb. And Ruben sent me an image. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. 
this is the, uh, the logo, if you would, for the Moravian Church. And the Moravian Church has got a long story, a long history, um, beautiful history. Um, and, it, and they ended up, uh, the Moravian people, um, they called themselves Moravians, they, they left, uh, they were being kind of persecuted for their um, kind of reformist belief. This is actually pre-Reformation. They were actually uh, before you know, Martin Luther and the 99 Theses and all, 95 Theses, but they were, they were like uh, expelled. Their key leader, John Huss, was assassinated. I mean, not assassinated, executed. And, and they were kind of, uh, fo- they were in exile and they landed at this this huge plot of land um, that this really rich dude named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf owned. We've talked about that guy. And uh, he created this community, and it was messy, and it was, it was crazy. And we'll get into that when we talk about community. But they were, like, fighting with each other and all this kind of stuff. But th- at the end of the day, they had this Latin phrase. I'm going to throw this up there. This is what... The Latin is, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. That was, their, that was their manifesto. Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. And so today, as we wrap this series up, uh, just like the churches in Revelation were invited, I'm just inviting you. I'm inviting you, some of you have kind of sat through this whole thing or parts of it, and, and you've realized that there's, there's a, a sense in which a surrender or an allegiant moment for you is, is, is kind of in, in the works or in the future. We, we talked, we sent a, a little note out, and I talked about potentially doing some baptisms this week. No one took me up on it. That's okay. But what baptism is, is a moment, an allegiant moment. Okay, nothing magical or mysterious happens to you during baptism. It is a way for you to, uh, it was, is, it was, in the early church, it was an entrance into the community of God. It was by saying, I am being baptized. I am I'm putting my allegiance into the slain lamb. I am following the lamb who has conquered and not anything or anyone else. And so this morning, may this be a reminder of your baptism, that you are a part of a a peculiar group of people who live, hopefully, more and more peculiar peculiar lives in a world that just chews people up for gain. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a borough and neighborhood of the New Jerusalem. And so this morning, we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table as slain lamb people. We're going to come to the table because this is the the end of the book of Revelation. There's this idea of happy is everyone invited to the lamb's marriage feast. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, passed the cup and he passed the bread. These were Passover symbols. And he passed them. And, and this has become the primary way for followers of Jesus to not only remember, uh, but to receive and to share in the meaning of our salvation. To share in the meaning of our healing. 
And this is where we affirm the action of God in our salvation. That we know and we believe that Christ is the incarnation, that Christ is God with us. That's what Advent is. And that we expect and we, we yearn and we hope for the fulfillment of all that he's promised. And that's what we do as we come together at the table. And there's many dimensions of the reality of our salvation. And it's not just preserved in a truth that you and I have to figure out or by some behavior, some ethical behavior that we have to change in our life. It's preserved in a meal. That's where it's located. It's located in a meal. And not everyone has to have like doctrine figured out and not everybody has to have all their obedience lined up and done and fixed. You just have to be able to put a piece of bread in your mouth and pass a cup and, 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 and understand that there's a mystery behind this statement, my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. And so we maintain continue this continuity with all the followers of Jesus throughout generations and millennia when we come to the table. It's like a manifesto moment, if you will, like a whole body manifesto that we are entering into what God has done for us. And so let me pray, and you're invited to the table. God, we are... Mm, overwhelmed. And many of us are in a moment of the frenzy, the chaos of Christmas season. And all the feelings and all the to-dos, but those will pass. And because we know they will pass, we take a, a moment to resettle in the, in the belief and the trust that you are Lord of all, that you were so compelled by your love for us that you came and gave everything to break the power that kept us away from you. You broke the power of sin and death and when we come to the table, we get to re-experience that again. And so God, as you, as you hear our worship, will you meet us in this moment? As we in, ingest the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, would you make it so that we are ingesting, re-ingesting our salvation, re-ingesting our, our commitment uh, to partner in your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our slain lamb. Amen.